LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, the new science of healthy eating. How much does your diet matter, really? I mean, sure, we all know that sweets and junk food are bad and that fruits and veggies are good. But beyond that, it gets real murky real fast. What's the latest on carbs? Are we allowed to eat them? How about meat? It's bad for the environment we know, but will it also shorten our lives? I've heard butter is back. Thank God for that. But we should probably consume as much of it as we can, folks, because it wouldn't surprise me one bit if our dietary overlords decide to banish it again. You know what, though? Why do we even listen to those dietary overlords? Isn't it possible they've dramatically overhyped the effect diet has on our overall well-being? If we exercise regularly and sleep well, does it really matter if we enjoy the occasional burger? There's so much confusing, not to mention contradictory info out there, you'd be forgiven for throwing up your hands and then bringing them back down and making a sandwich, preferably a BLT. We try our best. And our best, we think, is pretty good. After all, 75% of Americans say their diets are healthy. But guess what? Most of them, myself included, are wrong. How do I know they're wrong? Because if our diets were really as healthy as we think they are, then we'd be a lot healthier. Almost every common disease has some link with diet. Half of the disease burden of heart disease, arthritis, dementia, cancer, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune disease, and infertility could be prevented or delayed if people ate better. Half, half of the hospital visits, the medical expenses, and we'd all have more time with our grandchildren. It turns out eating well isn't just a nice habit, it is the single best thing you can do for your health. That's according to my guest today, Dr. Tim Spector. In addition to running the genetic epidemiology department at King's College London, Tim has found time to set up a personalized nutrition company, Zoe, which has raised 77 million in venture funding, He's also written five books, including The Diet Myth and Spoon Fed, which was a number one bestseller in the UK. His latest, Food for Life, is a 500-page encyclopedia with answers to just about every dietary question you can think of, from do vitamins really work to how many vegetables should I eat this week? For a long time, most of my diet was shaped by a single book, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. He made the case that it will take years, decades probably, for us to begin to fully understand the science of nutrition. Until then, the safe bet is to eat the foods with which we co-evolved over millions of years, namely fruits and vegetables. It's good advice, advice I still try to follow, advice Tim Spector would endorse. But having devoured food for life, I can say, It's just the tip of the iceberg lettuce. Our understanding of nutrition has come a long way in the 15 plus years since The Omnivore's Dilemma was first published. 
we're now able to identify at least 26,000 different chemicals in the foods we eat. We're beginning to understand the complexity. A humble clove of garlic contains 4,250 chemicals that impact our bodies in various ways. We're starting to figure it out. Today on the show, we'll dig into what scientists like Tim have learned about what you and I should eat and how we can enjoy our food even more. This conversation has already meaningfully changed what I eat every day, and I think those changes are going to stick. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Tim Spector, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start, Tim, by by talking briefly about your career. I think it's fair to say you're one of the UK's most celebrated epidemiologists. You're a professor of genetics at King's College of London. You published five books and over 800 research articles. And in 2020, you were awarded an Order of the British Empire Award. What makes this so remarkable is that you were, and I'm quoting you here, a lazy student in school. How did you turn it around? Can, can you share with us a little bit of your personal journey? I've always been lazy when it's uh, other people telling me what to do. I've always basically done the minimum to get through. And I sort of cruised through my first two years of uh, medical school, just doing the bare minimum because I, I didn't find rote learning, you know, the lymph vessels of the tongue particularly exciting. So it wasn't really until I was sort of midway through my medical studies that I started to get a bit of a bug for doing self-directed learning and research. And suddenly I realized that if I could pick the agenda, pick the research topic, and it was all in my own time, I loved it. Yeah, I, I have the same, what I refer to as issues with authority. Uh, and and my, my, my children, I have three boys and they do as well. So I'm always delighted to see examples of people who had motivation issues in the early phase of life and then found, found their calling. And I think part of your journey too was that longevity didn't necessarily run in the family and you had your own health challenges. Is that part of the... Of That's what, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was still a medical student when my father suddenly died at the age of 57. That was a quite a big point in my life. Sure. Which I sort of brushed off at the time. I said, oh, well, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm used to death and these other things happens to everybody. Just get mm. on with it. Yeah. But looking back, I, I think it it did make me more determined to do something with my life, not knowing how long I had to live as well. You know, and as I got more and more into genetics in my career, then I also became rather convinced that I was probably likely to die young as well, which uh, had this extra effect on me. And at the same time, as about 30 years ago, I started this twin study, uh, the Twins UK study, which is the largest uh, adult twin study in the UK and one of the biggest in the world. And that allowed me to sort of study any disease condition, 
from a sort of nature v nurture idea. So it totally suited me as a person that I, I wouldn't get bored studying one thing. I would, you know, could keep my self-directed excitement. And it was all going very nicely. I taught myself genetics and twin studies. And I became more and more interested in why identical twins end up often very different, why they die at different ages, why they you know, don't really have much similarity in things like cancer and other mysteries that at that time we weren't able to solve. And I was sort of looking for the magic key that might tell me what could I find in identical twin pairs that's going to tell us about you know, the rest of us uh, non-twin humans. That was where I was when another event hit me, which was uh, about 12 years ago now when I was doing some ski touring in the Italian Alps and uh, got a what I call a mini or micro stroke mm. that um, really hit me very badly for three months and certainly left me with high blood pressure. I double vision for three months, I couldn't work. And that led to a real sort of reevaluation of not only my own life again, but also, you know, what direction my research was going to take. You, you told The Guardian, I went from being a sporty, fitter-than-average middle-aged man to a pill-popping, depressed stroke victim with high blood pressure. Uh, so that was a, a, a wake-up call of sorts. It certainly was, because everyone said, oh, Tim, you're healthy and you, know, you don't need any of this advice. You don't need to worry about it. You just do what every other doctor advises patients and things, and you'll be fine. And um, it was this realization that I wasn't immortal and that you know, if I didn't do something, I'd end up dying within five years, like my father, made me sort of, hang on a minute, that you know, maybe there's something in this uh, lifestyle, maybe there's something in this diet that is actually actionable and real. And linking that with my new findings on gut health and gut microbes, you know, I could do something that not only helps me, but also could help the rest of the world. And that's when I made the decision to you know, write my next book on that topic, and really get into this whole field of the gut microbiome and uh, nutrition in a big way, because I realized that you know what the public were being told by the medical profession was as dreadful, and it was you know really not scientifically based. What to me is so exciting about about the twin studies and also the gut microbiome research is that it enables us to to separate what is genetic and what we can do practically in our daily lives to become more healthy. And one of the things that's extraordinary about your new book, Food for Life, is how bold some of the claims are about the importance of diet. Um, you say, um, virtually every common disease has some link with diet, either directly or via the effects of obesity. If everyone ate optimally, we could prevent or delay around half of the disease burden of heart disease, arthritis, dementia, cancer, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune, and so on. Part of the thesis, really, right, is, is that food is medicine. The decisions we make about the food that we eat can just profoundly impact our, our, our health on a daily basis and our longevity. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, we make hundreds of food choices in a week, and it's the most important factor in our health. And I don't think we've realized that we have this amazing power. And, and I think it, it really changes our whole way of thinking about it. Because 
obviously the importance of diet and our health has waxed and waned in the you know the genetic era when we're told it was all genetics and I was I was saying that as well I'm, I was guilty of it as well but now it's come back absolutely right at the center of things and so the most important factor all of us decisions all of us can make as individuals both for our own body but uh, increasingly for the planet and uh, mm -hmm. if, you know our food choices are the single most important thing we can do for climate change and put those two together it's pretty powerful um, medicine for your, the body and the planet of course other modifiable factors we think about in our own lives are exercise and sleep but you'd make the case that this is the single most important choice that we make yeah absolutely i mean it's a question of scale i mean sleep and exercise are really important but uh in terms of sheer size and scale it's dwarfed by you know the, the benefits of a healthy diet it's a confusing time for so many of us when it comes to food choices. Certainly for me, it's been a journey, I think, for all of us. Uh, in, in the U.S., there's a game children play called Red Light, Green Light. And when a parent says Green Light, all the children run. And when they say Red Light, everybody has to stop. And I think a lot of us have felt this way when it comes to you know, nutrition advice, right? You know, eggs, don't eat eggs. You, yes, you can eat eggs. <laughs> you know, butter's, uh, you know, evil, know, it, know what's acceptable. Fish and meats, can we microwave? Can we, do, do freezers kill nutrition? I think so many people have felt just confused and as a consequence have distrusted kind of new uh, in, instructions. <laughs> and, and I think this is somewhat validated by your own experience as a doctor, quite well-informed, and only a few years ago, you were eating a diet that you now realize was not terribly healthy for you. Can you relate with the sort of the sense of confusion and, and frustration that the average uh, person feels? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've just been totally misled over the last few decades. And I think the people are most vulnerable, people like in the US and the UK that lack a really strong food culture. Mm, so yeah. That, we blow in the wind, you know, whichever way that, you know, someone on the TV is talking to us well, because there was no base. When, it, I don't know, it was in the 1980s or whatever, you know, I believed the stuff that butter was bad for you and switched to margarine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have a French-Belgian wife who said, well, I don't believe that stuff. We, you know, we, butter's part of our culture. We're not going to change. Hmm. She never changed. You know, and I, I changed for something that was far less healthy. It was really bad for me just because it had nice pictures of Mediterranean peasants on the cover. I thought it was great. And <laughs> yeah. um, But this is what the medical people were telling us. This is, you know, butter's bad because of old-fashioned yeah. views about fats and cholesterols and things. We all got really mixed up about this. And it's only now that, you know, we, we've realized all the mistakes we've made. And also, I think, all this epidemiology is starting, it starts to make sense when you think about the gut microbes at the center of it. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. foods that are generally good for the gut microbiome tend to be good for us. And there's, I don't know of any exceptions to that rule. And it allows us to be more relaxed about eating eggs, for example, or something like that, that it probably has a fairly neutral effect on our, our gut microbes. Could we educate our listeners a little bit on the microbiome and what we've learned? I, I was blown away to read that there are as many bacterial cells in our body as there are human cells. So we're, we're, we're like half human, half bug. That's right. And, and some estimates put it as we're slightly more bug than human. And 
every time we go to the toilet and uh, produce a stool sample, we become more human. Um, <laughs> it's so I feel that way. The microbiome is this community of microorganisms, and there's trillions of them, you know, and they consist of bacteria, something called a related group called archaea. Uh, there are fungi. There are five times as many viruses uh, that, little, that feed off the bacteria. And there are also various parasites and other organisms floating around there in a sort of giant super jungle. And what they're all doing is they're all producing chemicals. They're like these pharmacies, floating pharmacies that reproduce all the time. And their job is to produce chemicals that send signals out and breaks them down and gets rid of the food. And it's it, it's trying to understand this incredibly complex network that's quite hard to grasp for many of us. But they produce the vitamins that we lack. They produce thousands of chemicals that break down our food, whereas our human body only produces about 20. And they produce chemicals that make us happy or sad. But crucially, they are the key to a healthy immune system. So the chemicals they're sending out are sending signals to our immune system. Most of it is in the gut anyway to keep us fighting infection and stop us getting allergies and fighting cancer and aging. So we're, we're discovering every year more fascinating facts about this, this incredible community that we just had no clue about. I think you say at one point that pretty much anything that's good for the gut ecosystem is good for us. And that to some degree, we're, we're feeding our gut ecosystem as much as we are our bodies, or those two things are intricately connected. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you know, we evolved from these bacteria and microorganisms and, um, you know, they've adapted to live inside our intestines in a nice warm place, doing all the things that we can't do. And so we're sharing, you know, they have 200 times more genes than we do. Wow. And, you know, the reason is, well, there's no point in humans having all these extra genes if they've got microbes to do it for them. So it's very much part of our bodies. And I think once you realize that and you realize, well, it's, it's like you've discovered a virtual organ, so like an extra liver or something, and we've got to now learn the simple concepts of how to look after that organ to make sure it has maximal health and longevity because it is vital to looking after us. And I think that's where you can you can be reductionist once you've understood that that basic concept that you know if you want a healthy garden you've got to feed it right you know you've got to give it basic things you don't have to know about the genetic makeup of every single plant in your garden there are some basic concepts you can um, go along with and i think that's you know the right fertilizer the right amount of watering sprinkling of new seeds every now and again avoiding pesticides and over too many chemicals and antibiotics mm-hmm. you know there are some general general rules you can do, even if, you know, the detail is incredibly complex. Right, right, right. And, and our modern environments have been, and diets have been kind of hostile to this gut ecosystem. What does the microbe-friendly diet look like? Can you give us kind of a broad outline of how we should be thinking about feeding and cultivating a healthy gut? Yeah, so, so you're right. I mean, we've lost nearly 50% of our gut species wow. in, the last, in the last 100 years. 
when you compare us to hunter-gatherers or people in developing countries, so who have a much broader range of, of species, which means they have more chemicals, which means their immune systems are better. So what we need to do to get it back on track and get it back towards those levels is, I, I think, of five basic rules to improve gut health, which are easy to remember. One is trying to eat a more diverse range of plants every week. We did a study between the British gut and the American gut about seven years ago, and it came up with a magic number of 30 plants is the optimum, which sounds a lot, but you've got to remember that each nut and seed, each herb and spice is also a plant in itself. Second rule is to try and eat the rainbow, brightly coloured foods, because uh, not only are they got plenty of different nutrients and often plenty of fibre, but they have these defense chemicals called polyphenols, mm, yeah. uh, which used to be called antioxidants. And they're like rocket fuel for your gut microbes. So many slightly bitter, slightly astringent, very colorful things, uh, berries, nuts, seeds, olive oil, and then some unusual ones like dark chocolate, black coffee, and red wine come in that category. Those last three, I'm, I'm, I'm big fans of all three of those last three. So that, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for the, for the chocolate, coffee, and wine endorsement. Yeah, but it's not Hershey's and uh, it's not a bottle of wine at night either. So there, there's some subtleties in there, yeah. but it's, it's, it's the purer form of these things in relatively small amounts is, is what we're, we're after. And then the third concept here is to have regular fermented foods. Mm, yeah. And... In the US and the UK, we've sort of forgotten these foods, which were all around us before refrigeration. It was the only way to preserve a lot of the foods rather than throwing it away. And mm. it's not just your yogurts, your cheeses, but it's also fermented milk, kefir. It's kombuchas, which is fermented tea. It's kraut, as in sauerkraut. And increasingly really good is, is Korean kimchi and uh various Japanese fermented miso uh, products as well. So small amounts every day. And studies have shown, uh, there was a study in Stanford recently showed if you can get people to have five or six very small amounts of uh, fermented food every day, you can, even in t after a couple of weeks, really uh, increase gut diversity and reduce inflammation. And I think that's that's really important. And then I've got number four is give your gut uh, microbes a break, which means give them a 14-hour fast. So you're only eating in a 10-hour window. The microbes really like that rest time to come out and repair the gut lining. And that, again, has been suggested to increase gut diversity and, and general health. So you're not eating all the time. Quick quick interjection here, Tim. I, I have been on the, the time-restricted intermittent fasting plan for about about three years now. And I, I had high cholesterol, both the, the good and the bad. And I was advised to go on statins. And I tried changing my diet, uh, eating less meat. I tried different things. And I, I still had dangerously high cholesterol, according to my doctors. And then I tried the intermittent fasting, and it dramatically improved my blood work. Uh, and I also just felt better. So I've, I've now been doing this for three years. I try to eat in an eight to nine hour window between roughly noon or one and eight or nine. And uh, it, it really has been transformative for me. That's, that at least has been my experience. Yeah, well, 
with a company Zoe in the UK, we did a this thing called the Zoe Health Study, which is a, the free app people can download. And we had about 140,000 people actually went live doing an experiment of uh, time street eating for the first time. And most people managed a 10-hour window. And on average, people felt a lot better, actually less hungry. <laughs> and uh, we found less bloating and stomach symptoms. So this idea of it resting your gut, I think is really important. People snacked less as well. That's one of the big innovations that I think uh, we think works in a sustainable way. And you've been doing it for years. You know, there's no reason you can't carry on most of your life doing that. But it's good because it doesn't mean that, you know, over the holidays, you can't break that rule for a few days. It doesn't really mm -hmm. matter. You just mm -hmm. go back to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what all this dietary advice needs to move away from this, this sort of limited restriction, really tough, you know, yeah. you've had a ice cream once, you know, you've, you've failed, you've got to start again. It's, um, it, it's realizing you're, it's, 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 you it needs to be sustainable and it's a, the long-term health that matters, you know, yeah. and that, yeah. that really brings us to the fifth, the sort of final guideline really is to reduce your dependence on ultra processed food. And the average American gets about, we think about 60% of their calorie intake through ultra processed foods. And it's probably 80% in children. Wow. And so it's 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 the worst country in the world for that. Uh, it's going in the wrong direction. And all these ultra-processed foods contain chemicals that our microbes just do not like. And it irritates them. And they send off signals telling the body, I think, you know, diabetic-type signals or lay down more fat signals or hunger signals. And... Uh, they reduce the gut diversity in nearly all cases. So these are the emulsifiers. These are the artificial sweeteners. These are things that get added every year. We're being told they're safe. And, you know, they're done to produce cheap, long-lasting products that um, were useful in the past to us, but have vastly gone over that balance of cheapness versus risk. So they're, they're the five things that... Um, people can do at a general level. Of course, you know, with the Zoe company, we're interested in personalization and part of the test, and this is available in the US and the UK, you, you get your microbiome scored where we look at those differences between people. And I think everyone in the future, it will be like having your blood pressure checked. You know, what is the state of your gut microbes now? And where do you want it to be in six months' time? How do you want to move it on? And do you have certain, you know, very individual microbes that mean that we can start tailoring foods to those particular microbes? And I think that's that's the exciting future. What exactly are ultra-processed foods? Can you can you give us some some examples? It's, uh, I mean, ultra-processed sounds even more frightening than processed foods, which which is the term I'm familiar with. Ultra-processed is when that food doesn't resemble the original ingredients and it, it only contains extracts of those original ingredients that are put together in vast chemical factories to produce something that uh, is tasty and palatable just by adding more and more extracts and chemicals and flavorings. So corn on the cob in its natural form is sticking on the barbecue. That's, that's an unprocessed food. Once you take that corn and you make it into cornflakes, or you make it into Doritos, 
it's ultra-processed because all the good bits of the corn have been stripped away, all the fiber has gone, all the nutrients and the vitamins have been taken away from it. It's been ground down to a, a really fine powder, and so it gets absorbed in your body really fast. So you get a big sugar peak, get inflammation peaks, and it has a very different effect on your body to the whole food, you know, eating your corn on the cob. That's the best sort of analogy I think we've got. We're only just beginning to start looking at this as a new science, looking at ultra-processed yeah. food, because no one has dared do this. It's It's been where the food companies do not want us to go. They don't want right, testing right. this right. food. There's hundreds of billions of dollars of profits. And you can have high margins around when you produce Cheerios in a way that you can't when you resell oats in their original form, <laughs> right? So they, so from, from, a, yeah. from a business it's, industrial complex perspective- It, it gets cheaper. And the difference between them gets bigger and bigger because you know we're subsidizing these giant factories run by robots and they're just taking, you know, extracts of food from around the world and just pre-purposing it into something that then looks like fake food again. I'm I'm totally happy to give up um, cornflakes, which I never loved, but Cheerios, Tim. I, I have a soft spot for Cheerios, so I'm I'm sorry to see those go. It's none of these things are off the limit. You know, at Zoe, we've decided you know you can eat anything. It just gives you a bad score. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. it just means your next meal has to be, you know, much better to compensate for it. So you can't do away with ultra processed foods, and we are dependent on them for, you know, these long shelf life foods. But I think if everybody just makes this shift and realize this stuff, if you have it regularly, is really, you know, has a long term bad effect. Having one bowl of Cheerios, you know, uh, every couple of weeks probably isn't going to kill you. Yeah, and I think you know we all like a treat and. Uh, diversity of you know flavors and tastes is important and the reason people eat this stuff is they they are tasty but as uh, my colleague Kevin Hall at NIH in Bethesda showed two identical meals one made or diet for for several weeks made up of ultra processed or the equivalent home cooked meal identical calories you'll be overeating by 10 to 20% on the ultra processed foods. So even if it says low calorie on it, you're going to actually keep overeating. And that's what foods like your Cheerios do. They, they give you increase your hunger and they don't satisfy it. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Tim explains why everything you think you know about vitamins and supplements is wrong. You like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, and I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. All oh, let's call the whole thing off. But all. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey. 
there's a lot of, of counterintuitive information in your book, a lot of myth busting, which is just fascinating for me. It's already very substantially changed my eating habits in the last two weeks <laughs> as I've been reading it. And, you know, so starting with some of the things that I think will surprise some of our listeners, your view is that vitamins and supplements to, uh, I think one could say more broadly, are for the most part worthless. Is that right? Yes. And that's the um, bit of the book that upsets most people. Um, and when I give a talk, people get most upset about it. And they say, I believe everything else in your book, Tim, but don't tell me vitamins don't work. My you know, bathroom shelf is full of them and I love them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm just repeating what the science is showing us. And when vigorous, rigorous science is done and you do randomized controlled trials, you give dummy tablets to one group, the real vitamin or supplement to the other. Uh, virtually none of these products have any benefit. And in some cases, they can do harm. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but for the vast majority of us who have enough money to have a balanced diet, they are, in my view, worthless. And that's what the the data shows. If instead of spending those billions of dollars on supplements, we spent it on higher quality food and a greater variety of food, we'd be much better off. You know, one of the things that I love about, about your book, Tim, is that in addition to being really authoritative and kind of encyclopedic about covering the nutritional impact of every different food and, and, and food preparation technique one can imagine, it also is, is kind of rapturous about the beauty of our sensory experience of taste and celebrating good food. So I think that one can look at this as sort of a list of all the things you shouldn't do, right? Which is part of what turns people off about you know, nutritional advice. Or one can take a sort of positive slant on it and celebrate the beauty of all these extraordinary foods that we've co-evolved with in the form of all these plants and, and animals and the things that we eat that are absolutely delicious. And we have these pretty extraordinary capabilities to smell, taste, and enjoy foods. I personally like this approach of kind of focusing on taking pleasure in the right food opposed to demonizing, you know, all the wrong food. Is that, it seems like that's part of how you, your own personal perspective on how we can embrace a healthier diet. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, we're all sick of, you know, being told we can't eat anything except these, this small range of pure foods or that we have to avoid gluten or we have to avoid lectin or we've got to avoid anything with an E number or we've got to, you know, and with sort of religious fanaticism. So, I think the idea is to take the opposite approach and say, listen, if we all ate more diversely, the effect of any one bad food is going to be much diluted anyway. And I want to increase our taste buds, you know, move us away from artificially sweetened foods that kids have to, you know, the whole range of sourness and bitterness and uh, other that's in, in nature out there that we were we were designed to eat and that many other you know cultures do regularly eat and teach their kids to eat. I want people to come away with a, a willingness to actually embrace the amazing diversity of food choice we have. If they still want to have Cheerios once a week, that's absolutely fine. But just think more carefully what your next meal is and can I have something different? How do I mix things up? Because you know, I found that I was also in a food rut 10 years ago. I'd 
pick something I thought was healthy and nice, and I'd have exactly that same meal all the time, especially if you're busy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we've all fallen into that trap. And I think it's realizing that we weren't supposed to eat like that. You know, our hunter gatherers would, you know, have a whole range of different things they were eating every every day and every season it would change. So embracing that diversity, I think, of, of tastes as well as health benefits, uh, I think is really important. I, I love your your description early in the book about uh, how our whole sense of color may have evolved for the purpose of distinguishing foods. You say that we can distinguish 5 million colors and our 400 smell receptors can distinguish a trillion combination of odors. As we stroll down the aisle in the grocery store, we might delight, right, in, in all the, the nuances of, of all these beautiful foods that are available to us and all the sensory experiences that are available to us. My children seem to believe that there's an inverse relationship between how good something tastes and how healthy it is. And, and they like to, when I was, you know, reading to them sections of your book in the last two weeks, they like to say, I'd rather live fewer years, but just enjoy every meal. And I said, well, that's not, but I, I'm clearly doing something wrong as a father here because, you know, the most delicious food is actually uh, potentially quite, quite healthy for you. But uh, on that note, maybe we should stroll down the aisle together, Tim, and, and, and talk about what, what foods we, sh- we should be delighting in and, and, and taking off the shelves in the, in the grocery store. Sure. Yeah. So just, you know, how do you pick a lettuce? For most Americans, the only regular vegetable they eat is an iceberg lettuce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's only been around in the US I know, for a few decades because it was the first lettuce that could be transported by truck from one coast to another and in ice because uh, all the other ones would wilt and die. And this stuff has absolutely no nutrient value whatsoever. And you compare that with a nice Italian style loose leaf uh, lettuce, which has purple or red tips on the, on the green leaves, that is a thousand times more polyphenols than your iceberg lettuce. And they're the sort of choices we should be making, these simple swaps that say, why should you eat every day something I thought was healthy that actually has no value at all Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. when I could have something that is actually going to boost my immune system and help my gut microbes and give me some fiber? You also point out that the tightly packed leaves near the center of the plant, if we think of this uh, loosely frilly lettuces, contain less antioxidants. In some lettuces, uh, there could be a hundredfold difference between the nutritional value of the outer leaves compared with the center. So, so don't throw away the frilly outer leaves because uh, effectively the defense mechanisms that the vegetables are creating to survive uh, the elements and natural pesticides are extremely healthy for us. Yeah, that's right. And I've been speaking to vegetable growers who are actually putting some of these lettuces and plants into wind tunnels. And if you stress them, they produce more polyphenols. So in the future foods, we you know may actually have these extremes of temperature and wind to actually make them produce more defense chemicals, which we can then eat and our microbes can use. So I think it's a whole new area of science we had no clue about before. And it, it also explains why herbs and spices are particularly good for us, because they're the most concentrated bits of either the root or the leaf that 
need those defense chemicals as they're burrowing to the ground or the first thing to come out out of the soil. And that's why those are the best bits of, of the plants to eat. And that's why you know they have all these associated health benefits. So it's it's understanding you know which bit of the plant it is. Color gives you an indication that's got really healthy things in it. Slightly bitter tasting rather than totally bland is also important. And I think once you start looking at this, you know, in the grocery aisle, you'll start picking. You want to pick the rainbow. You want lots of different colors, which is fun. Mm -hmm. And you learn yeah. more about some of the plants you're eating and not just looking at the labels. You know, the idea is that everyone should be able to learn more from these kind of books and become their, you know, and then teach other people and then teach their kids about food properly. Yeah. And, and I think understanding some of this context makes the eating experience more pleasurable. I found this in the last couple of weeks of cooking based on your book, going out and selecting and discovering these, you know, rainbow colored carrots and, you know, frilly purple lettuces and, and, and the Kalmuda tomatoes that are, are almost like a, you know, a purple Maybe color. Black. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, but, and realizing that, wow, some of these have dramatically more uh, nutritional value. And then you start to associate that slightly more bitter taste with something positive. And my hope is that eventually my children <laughs> will, will, will start to associate the bitterness of certain greens and certain vegetables as something that is part of the flavor profile and that is part of this kind of beautiful experience of, of enjoying uh, great food. Yeah, I think exactly. I mean, and, and your kids seem to be the major challenge in your life, but you've got to look at other cultures and, you know, they, the Koreans have a great thing. They, they give their newborns as, as soon as they, they've stopped weaning um, kimchi, which is, for those who don't know it, like got packed with garlic and chilies. And, yeah, you know, yeah. they, they have this tradition of that first photo of the baby having kimchi and they all pull a face. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> they all say there's horror. Oh, what's this? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's very different to mother's milk, but eventually, you know, every Korean is is sort of addicted to kimchi. So I think we just got to change our views about what what good food is and move away from this idea that everything's got to taste like breast milk and be you know sickly yeah, sweet. Yeah, you know, we need to just change all our views about modern eating. Really, turn it on its head. But yeah, going back to our shopping aisle, there's so many things in there that. Even just researching the book, I've changed my mind on. Um, but some of these things also are personalized. So on the fruit aisle, I used to eat a lot of bananas. My go-to thing used to take a banana mm -hmm. to work, mm -hmm. and that was my – it was easy because it comes in its own zippered uh, skin. <laughs> very, very convenient, yeah. Um, and I also used, used to eat grapes. But I, since I did my personalized testing, I know with the Zoe kit, I know my blood glucose – goes sky high, on particularly on grapes. And if I swap my banana for, a, say, an apple or a pear, then actually my scores are much better. So I get, you know, I don't get that sugar peak, which means you don't get the inflammation and the, and the hunger. And so learning which of these more sugary fruits you can cope with is also important and realizing they're, they're all quite different and not certainly not all fruits are the same and uh, not, not all vegetables are the same and of course you know tomato is a fruit but we call it a vegetable and you know there's lots of other uh, strange historical uh, misnomers out there but just treat them all as fascinating things to try and there's many exotic ones as well we should all be trying which are great fun
the importance of understanding our personal bodies and how they process food differently was central to your last book, Spoon Fed, and, and, and plays a part in, in your new book. And this does seem like it will be a very important part about how we think about nutrition in the future, that it's not just a single set of instructions for everyone. We need to understand our individual bodies because, as I understand it, we process sugars and, I guess, also fats quite differently. Is that right? Yes. When we started Zoe, the very first big research project we did was to get a 1,000 twins uh, and 100 volunteers in, in Boston to take have an identical meal at an identical time. We gave them muffins and a milkshake, and we took their bloods and measured their responses to all those for the next few hours. And it turned out that no two people were the same in their blood response to that identical meal on, on, you know, in identical conditions. And there was a tenfold difference between people. And this is true even in identical twins. So we all respond incredibly differently to the same food. So if everyone understood where they were in their sugar and their fat peaks, that would make a big difference long term in how much stress they're causing their body and how their metabolism, their sort of energy requirements are working. And so that that's really that was the basis of Zoe. These big studies, which we've now gone from 1,000, we've done now done 50,000 people and uh, building this massive database of all these individual differences and, and trying to then tailor foods, giving individual scores for different people based on their fat levels, their uh, your sort of immediate sugar levels, and also your gut microbiome score. So everyone gets a unique number for any meal or any food, which very different to my wife and I are quite different in the end. So you know, she can have a, a croissant and it doesn't score great, but it scores like four out of 10. You know, I'd be one out of 10 for a croissant. Tim, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's that's a, my condolences that uh, you have to it watch. You have to watch your wife enjoy a croissant while restraining. That must be tough. It's one of the, one of the hardest things uh, <laughs> I've had to face in my career is, is, is seeing her tucking into these pastries while I know the harm it does me. Yeah. So but I've got to love yogurt and cheese and uh, lots of these fatty stuff. My cheese is my is my commiseration. Right, though. and you do enjoy an occasional croissant if, if you're at the right uh, pastry shop in Paris. Uh, Absolutely, you know. that, because you know it is a pleasure, and you shouldn't be punished and never have these things. You just be you don't as I used to have it regularly, and you know have bad croissants just for the sake of having it. I think that's the key. Well, I, I'm going to order a Zoe kit because I'm 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 very hopeful that I'm in your wife's camp when it comes to croissants. We'll have to find out. Um, but it, it, if, you, it's, if uh, you pay extra, we can uh, yeah, I can see what I can do okay. to get you. There's a there, that's a that's an excellent addition to your business model and upsell. <laughs> Coming up after the break, Tim's rapid fire list of the best foods you can eat. We put a lot of love into these episodes. And when I say we, I mean my producer, Caleb. And when I say love, I mean he uses a digital scalpel to excise all of my ums and ahs, my stumbles and stammers. That's right, folks. I'm not as naturally silver-tongued as these episodes would have you believe. 
a lot of the time I sound like this. So, so this, this, um, this personal, um, I'm going to start that again. Um, I am grateful for all the work Caleb does to make me sound better. And if you are too, one way you can show that gratitude is by downloading the next big idea app. There you'll find ad-free versions of this podcast, hundreds of book summaries written and read by the world's leading nonfiction authors, a new one every single day. Plus, there are masterclass style video e-courses and exclusive conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink. All of this content is beautifully edited by our entire team. And these folks, well, they like to be paid. So your support is deeply appreciated. Getting Smart Fast has never sounded so good. Search for the next big idea in your app store today. There are winners and losers in this analysis, but olive oil, specifically extra virgin olive oil, you describe as a superfood. If anything is going to be called a superfood, it would be olive oil. Can we just use as much of it as we like? Yes. For the vast majority of people, as far as we know, there's no upper limit on olive oil. And we know the Greeks and the Spaniards and the Southern Italians use masses of it and have much less health problems than uh, we do. I love this detail that early tourists to Spain in the 1970s were horrified to see food floating in extra virgin olive oil. <laughs> it turns out Greeks consume six times more olive oil than Americans. And of course, they're much, much healthier. When I think olive oil, I then think garlic. I just love garlic. And it turns out that it has all these very positive health impacts, right? Is that So can we eat as much garlic as we like if our spouses don't protest? Yeah, no, no limit to how much garlic you can eat. Um, I think that's the, the general rule. It's about personal taste. But do, do remember to cut up your garlic, ideally 10 minutes before you cook with it, because it needs 10 minutes to deactivate an enzyme, which prevents some of the, the benefits of the nutrients and the antioxidants in it. So cut it and then have a, a glass of wine while you're, while you're waiting for the uh, chemicals to brew. So that is so interesting I, th that we can release nutrients by chopping foods and also by cooking them. I was really interested to read that, um, that I think you say that lightly sauteing carrots can have the effect of substantially increasing the beta carotene nutritional benefit. Yeah, I was quite surprised that many foods actually, you get more nutrients from it when you lightly cook it than if you have them raw which was against what many people believe. And many foods in combination are enhanced as well. So sometimes, you know, cooking things in, in olive oil brings out more nutrients than cooking them separately. And even adding onions and garlic to other things, you know, can also bring out the extra nutrients. So it's, it all seems to be pointed to this diversity idea that, you know, rather than reductionism, uh, we should be combining foods and eating more of them. And so eggs, I was delighted to learn that eggs, I think uh, you defend at least some consumption of eggs as a nutritional. Uh, yes, the, I looked at, re-looked, and that, you know, this is always in the media, but it looks like the sweet spot where most studies show it's happy is, is, a, is you know, just under one egg a day, uh, six or seven a week. So I eat eggs and... Um, no real evidence that they're bad for you. Yeah, yeah. So berries, um, blueberries seem to come out as a winner. What do you think of blueberries and, and other kinds of berries? 
they're great. Most berries are fantastic. You don't have to get the most expensive ones and uh, blueberries are plentiful. And when they're in season, you can freeze them and they're still just as good. I mean, even better in season, if you can get uh, blackberries or raspberries, they're pretty good too. And they're, uh, they're high in fiber and in these polyphenol chemicals. And so they often come out weight for weight as some of the best things you can eat on, on the planet. But don't spend a fortune on them. They're all, they're all pretty good to just pick whichever one uh, works. Meats and fish. You seem to not be quite as severe in your condemnation of meat as some others. Uh, what's your view of, of our meat consumption and fish consumption? Well, for the sake of the planet, we should all be reducing our meat and fish consumption. And I think a small bit of meat is not unhealthy as long as it's not processed meats. So a small amount of good quality grass-fed uh, animal for your health is fine as long as you're having plenty of plants with it. The problem is, oh, those cheap meats should be totally avoided in, in processed foods, ready meals, frozen lasagnas, etc. So they're terrible. But the best thing we can all do for the planet would be to give up eating beef and lamb because the cost for land is just massive. So the single most important thing we can do for climate change is not to drive our cars less or uh, take less airplane flights. It's just to uh, reduce our meat consumption. Now, fish, I thought was great, but actually health-wise, only marginal benefits from eating fish in the studies. And it's an environmental disaster. Over 70% of all the fish we eat comes from artificial fish farms, and they're using up our ocean's small fish to feed those fish farms. So it's an environmental disaster. And a lot of the fish we're sold is fake fish and has many other problems in it. And the big fish have mercury. So yeah, I eat fish, uh, but I tend to do it you know, at, at a restaurant. And I, I'm not a believer in having to have lots of portions of of fish mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, every week. It should be a little treat yeah, we give yeah. ourselves. But mushrooms, mushrooms perhaps should play a more central role in our diets. I've been sauteing mushrooms and with lots of garlic and, and olive oil uh, while reading your book. And, and um, I think that's going to be part of my future. Yeah, me too. I uh, since, re since researching my book, I've gone crazy on mushrooms. And uh, I think they are definitely the, the food of the future. And I've been having some great fermented mushrooms recently that you know, I, I can't tell apart from meat. Mm, yeah, you know yeah. Those fungi are, are amazing and they're packed full of nutrients, even get vitamin D from them. So yeah, uh, they're a real future food. Well, Tim, I, I, I love this line. I wrote Food for Life because I want to look beyond food as a tool for weight loss or gain and instead think about food for our health in the broadest sense, our individual health, the health of our society, and the health of our planet. So uh, thank you for this book. Thank you for giving us permission to sometimes break the rules in the book. <laughs> and, and eat a croissant and a or, or Cheerios or Cheerios. Thank you, I appreciate that. And and uh, and I love your line. Also, paying attention to daily habits is more important than striving for perfection. So uh, you know, we, we we can break the rules now and then, but if we just can develop daily habits that are nutritious, it, it, it can be transformative. Absolutely, and let's enjoy the diversity, you know, of food that we have on the planet. 
Well, Tim Spector, thank you for taking time out of your baking of sourdough and fermenting of kimchi and nurturing of kombucha mothers uh, to, <laughs> to be with us today. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been my pleasure. That was Tim Spector, author of Food for Life. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like the conversation I recorded with my sister, Amanda Little, about how climate change is impacting our food systems. You can find that episode in our feed. It's called Food, or you can follow the link in our show notes. Over the past year, we here at the Next Big Idea Club have been pouring our hearts and souls into a one-of-a-kind book summary app. It's like a rainbow-colored superfood for your brain. It's loaded with hundreds of book summaries, a new one every single day written and read by the world's leading nonfiction authors. Plus, there are ad-free versions of this podcast, exclusive conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Dan Pink, masterclass-style video e-courses, and tons of other polyphenol-rich content. To access this cornucopia, all you have to do is go to your app store and search for the next big idea. This show is produced in partnership with LinkedIn. And speaking of LinkedIn, I'd love it if you'd sign up for my LinkedIn newsletter. Every Thursday morning, we send you the inside scoop on the week's episode, featuring a rundown of my favorite moments from the conversation, bonus insights that didn't make it into the edit, and occasionally embarrassing family photos. To subscribe, find me, Rufus Griscom, on LinkedIn. There's a handy little link to sign up for our newsletter near the top of my profile. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger, which means he and he alone was responsible for the tip of the iceberg lettuce pun you heard at the top. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. <laughs>